Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the Poisons and Pestilence podcast. This week we are very lucky to be joined by Dan Casita, who is currently an Associate Fellow at the prestigious Royal United Service Institute in the UK and is someone who has a very long and colourful experience in the area of CBRN. He's also someone uh, with a long-standing interest in history and in particular he's become interested in an enigmatic character called Edmund Tilly. Now Edmund Tilly only makes a fleeting appearance in the history of chemical warfare but he does so at a very interesting and pivotal time. This is the point at which at the end of the Second World War the Allies had discovered the extent of the Nazi nerve agent program and were seeking to interrogate those scientists who had been involved in that work in order to extract the secrets which would eventually feed in to Western and indeed Eastern chemical warfare programs of the 1950s and 60s and beyond. agents were first discovered by German scientists shortly before World War II. They were looking for a better insecticide. Nerve agents were a deadly addition to Germany's arsenal of secret weapons. May 1945, the Allied armies pushed deep into German territory. In the American occupation zone alone were stockpiles containing over 100,000 tons of chemical munitions. Over 611,000 artillery shells had been filled with a nerve agent, GA. The loading and storage facilities in the Allied occupation zones were dismantled. The factories that manufactured the nerve agents were all in the Russian zone. They too were dismantled, taken behind the Iron Curtain and put back into production. So Dan, uh, great to have you on the show. Uh, Why don't you start by giving us an introduction uh, to your background in this area? Uh, okay, Brett. Um, basically, I've spent, uh, I have to think about what year it is now, uh, 31 years in the chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, CBRN space, one way or another. Uh, I started out in 1991 as a young second lieutenant in the U.S. Army Chemical Corps. I went to U.S. Army Chemical School, learned military CBRN defense. Left active service, became a reservist, first in the U.S. Army Reserve, then in the Maryland National Guard. Uh, kept trying to escape CBRN stuff, but kept getting dragged into it. I had, you know, I ended up doing a defense contractor job at the Pentagon, followed by a civil service position. And in 1995, some guys in the Tokyo subway perpetrated an atrocity, which inadvertently gave me a career boost. All of a sudden, CBRN counterterrorism was a thing, and I happened to be the right guy in the room at the time, literally, at a point when somebody said, does anybody know about SARIN? I'm like, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, the wheels of government turned quickly for once. The next thing you know, I had an office with a window in the Pentagon, which is unusual. There's, you know, <laughs> 25,000 people in the Pentagon, only something like 7,738 windows. <laughs> and within about a year, I found myself actually working at the White House. I was at the White House military office where I spent six years as a CBRN defense advisor doing things from the mundane to the strategic, from the sublime to the ridiculous, and eventually got poached by the uh, U.S. Secret Service for basically, you know, more money and a badge and a gun, and moved my office 400 meters down the street to the U.S. Secret Service, where I spent another six years. There I had the you know, privilege and duty of protecting the White House complex and the president at the time it was George W. Bush from, you know, chemical, biological, radiological threats. I then moved for personal reasons. Uh, I got married uh, in 2008 to the UK, where I delved into private industry. I worked for Smith's Detection, a company that makes, among other things, chemical and biological detection equipment. I sold that stuff all over Europe. Found, found a lot, a lot of people just like me in the European space doing jobs similar to what I had done in the military and sort of civil counterterrorism space. I quit that job in 2011, and since then I've been an independent consultant, pontificator, you know, uh, 
ass. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm on a quiet but persistent mission to by the time I shuffle off this mortal coil, and I hope I have a lot more time to go, you know, having written more about CBRN stuff than anybody else. All right, I'm already somewhere up in you know, well over half a million words published, so I'm I'm hoping to get there, you know. So that's that's the pricey of my career. Great stuff. It's amazing how many uh, people, when I speak to them about this, they always seem to end up in this field by accident. So I, uh, when I was harassing you to come on the show, basically emailed and said, you know, um, you can dream topic, you can talk about anything in the history of, of chemical and biological weapons and warfare. What would you you choose? And why don't you tell us what you've, you've gone for today? I am here on a quest for more information and a discussion about a guy named Edmund Tilly. And the reason why, and we'll get to the reason why and how he plays into this whole whole role in history of chemical warfare, chemical weapons. I have somehow, yeah, as you mentioned, I be, by accident became, you know, spent 30 years in uh, CBRN, and I've accidentally turned into an, a historian. <laughs> That's the worst things to turn into, I guess. Well, I, I know because I've always been his. I've always been interested in history. I was interested in history my ever since I could read, uh, you know. And I I found myself in a field where there are a lot of guys with chemistry degrees and chemical engineering degrees and biology degrees and physicists and uh, engineering types and technical types and guys who do aerosol modeling and stuff like that. And these are not people who are terribly interested in history, but there's a huge amount of history. And so I informally started collecting stuff that was just interesting to me. And I actually had this opportunity when I was in that Pentagon with that window to actually talk to some people who were left over from the bad old days of offensive programs uh, in the U.S. government. I, you know, got a lot of them to talk. Uh, and I just became informally a historian until I ended up with things like book contracts. So now I'm formally a historian. <laughs> so... What this means to me now is actually, I occasionally find things that are really, really, really interesting that are tangents from the original story. That happens, basically anybody I know who's a serious uh, historian, archivist, museum studies person, you know, you're looking for one thing, you find something that's terribly interesting and you end up off on a tangent. And this guy, Tilly, I'm gonna tell you, the history of chemical and biological stuff, bad stuff, you know, is really full of boring people. People whose great achievements were scientific papers that are basically impenetrable to anybody who isn't a specialist in, say, organophosphate chemistry. And I started looking at a lot of the historical backgrounds of a lot of these, these people. And outside of the lab or outside of the factory, bless them, they're, they're boring non-entities as far as the historical record is concerned. They, they were born, they went to university, they got three or four degrees, they did brilliant stuff, they retired, they wrote a few papers, they died. But I found this other guy. And so maybe we should sort of launch into how we, we got to this, this other guy, Tilly, and why I think it's interesting. Great. So shall we, I guess we could start right at the beginning at the context in a, in a period where, let's be honest, is often still skipped over in kind of textbook introductions to the history of chemical and biological warfare. This is the role of chemical weapons during World War II, which most people I think, have a kind of glancing familiarity with. They maybe yeah. think about Japan or yeah. not so much about what was going on in, in Europe and in the US in terms of preparations. So why don't we, we start there with that kind yeah. of context? Yeah, uh, if I could give a general summary. I mean, if you're going to look at World War II in Europe, and we're basically talking about Europe here because the whole Japan-China thing is another whole scene in chemical warfare and one that I need to learn more about, and I have interesting hypotheses about. But if you're looking at the major European conflict, you know, uh, Germany, Germany, Italy versus you know, Eastern and Western allies, uh, at the very beginning of the war, it was a slightly different alignment. We forget, many of us forget, I don't, but at the beginning of the war, the Soviet Union was on the side of the Germans. Uh, but what you got is this major confrontation between most of the powers in, 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 in Europe. And by and large, these are countries that had fought in the First World War. And the First World War, one of the many things that had been developed in the First World War was chemical weapons. And if you look at military thinking in the 20s and 30s, an awful lot of it was really trying to fight the last war. So the last war had chemicals, so we're going to assume that the next war has chemicals. 
And what we have is an interesting case study of actual deterrence in that because pretty much everybody had some kind, even the, even the small and medium-sized countries had some degree of chemical weapons. Uh, countries like Greece and Hungary uh, and, uh, and Belgium had chemical weapons programs. Okay. The Czechs, uh, the Czechs fell off the, the map of Europe before the war, but they had a chemical warfare program. The Poles had a chemical warfare program. Now, nobody's really making any effort to hide that. There is this arms control treaty, the Geneva Protocol, which says you can't do it, but it really just says you can't be the first to use it. So everybody's got this as a deterrent. And largely, uh, throughout the whole war, that whole mutual deterrence of chemical weapons um, pretty much holds. There's a couple odd sort of outlier incidents, uh, most of which you know, can be explained away as a, you know, in, in a, as a, as a, as a local error, a local oops. There's a story about a mustard gas round, uh, uh, um, a mustard gas uh, bomb being accidentally loaded onto a German bomber and dropped in Poland. Uh, there is a, one incident in this place called Jaslo, and, and uh, I'm not probably not even pronouncing that right. Poland. There's a few instances in in the Eastern Front of toxic smoke uh, being used. And there was this big incident in Italy where a U.S. ship get, uh, the, uh, gets carrying mustard gas is is struck by an air raid. Lots of people die. Lots of people are injured. Uh, but those are the exceptions. The by and large, the the thing held. Uh, but what you get was everybody understood. All the people who were in the chemical warfare business understood that the chemical weapons of the first generation, that the 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 chlorine, the phosgene, the mustard, the lewisite, were okay, but did not live up to the expectations. You can't really point to many things that won, many of these situations where chemicals won a battle, let alone won a war. Uh, there's, there, in fact, there's the opposite. There's cases where, you know, the wind shifted and chemical weapons used did, did help somebody lose the battle, okay, <laughs> instead of win it. Uh, but there was a, Prevailing, uh, there was a prevailing thought that, well, we just need better chemicals. Now, not a lot of people were putting a lot of money into that. The, the R&D efforts into better chemicals were largely under-resourced because, among other things, we're talking about the 20s and 30s. We had the, 20s, the 20s were not an era of great military spending, and the 30s were the era of the Great Depression. So this sort of thing was well beyond building new battleships and working on new airplanes and stuff like that. Stuff that really, actually, if you were a bean counter in in the in the defense ministries, or the uh, things that showed more promise than chemical weapons. Uh, this is, I'm not going to say a completely neglected backwater, but not heavily resourced. But you add into that equation in Germany an industrial uh, development that turns out to have spinoffs and ramifications. So German chemists working at IG Farben the German chemical conglomerate, are working on pesticides. Now, pesticides have an interesting history, too, because there's a whole economic aspect of warfare. Germany is easily blockaded. Uh, Germany is only one bad harvest away from you know, defeat. One of the reasons why Germany lost the First World War was its troops started going hungry. There were actually mutinies in the Navy, things like that. So the Germans understand that actually crop protection is important. So pesticides have it. pesticides and fertilizers. You know these things have uh, you know a role in national security. So also Germans understand they are because they're easily blockaded and they don't have an easy source domestic source of petroleum. And the pesticides are all basically petroleum products, and the ones that aren't are dissolved in kerosene. And dispense that way, and so so the solvent is a petroleum product. So there was this push to start working on things that you know use a domestic supply chain. Uh, so to simplify, hey, you guys in IG Farben, can't you find a bug killer that you know we can make out of stuff we can dig out of the ground here in Germany? Is the bottom line, and the answer was yes. Uh, so you get this whole organophosphate revolution in chemistry. Particularly one guy, Gerhard Schroeder, and I tell you, I mean, he's interesting to me, but his personal life seems terribly uninteresting. We're back to the whole thing. I, I was hoping to find some stunning, <laughs> stunning, uh, you know, 
thing about Gerhard Schroeder and uh, <laughs> bless him. Uh, what a mundane existence. Uh, yeah. And he really just wanted to kill Colorado potato beetles. <laughs> uh, you know, he gets painted out as a mad genius, you know, a mad scientist, you know, wanting to gas the world. He really just wanted to get rid of potato beetles. Okay. He comes up with pesticides that are actually too dangerous to use because they'll kill the farmer. And this is at the point where there is a rearmament campaign in Germany. So we're talking about 1936 now, by the time of the, yeah, late 1936 was happening. And Schroeder's superiors are like, ooh, that's very interesting. That's exactly the sort of thing we can sell to the army. Not to kill bugs. If it's too unsafe and it kills all the test animals, even if we do it almost to homeopathic dilution, yeah, it's a commercial failure as pesticides. Ooh, that's terrible. Go work on something a little bit safer, but give us the formula. Yeah. <laughs> uh, keep, keep working, though. If you find something even more dangerous, be extra careful to let us know. The Germans stumble upon this compound taboo. They didn't call it at the time uh, that. They called it Trilon, which was a nickname for one of their, their cleaning products. Uh, and part of the thing is these chemical warfare agents have numerous nicknames over the years and the nomenclature becomes terribly, terribly obtuse. We're not going to get that, down that rabbit hole. But gradually speaking, you know, this idea is kicking around. The German army has this new uh, new chemical warfare agent, Taboo. A couple others like Sarin and Soma that are even more dangerous, sort of behind it, the development uh, uh, pipeline. Oh, coming out of the same research, and then the war starts. So once, once the war starts, I mean, it's, I think the shells are still, the bombs are still landing on Warsaw during the invasion, and lots of nice guys from, and they weren't nice guys, actually, people like Otto Ambrose, uh, the, you know, these lots of middle and upper management guys from IG Farben are, lobbying and literally hanging out in the lobbies and having meetings in their best suits and with uh, they didn't have powerpoint slides at the time but they had you know lots of charts and diagrams and proposals and draft contracts uh and next thing you know money is falling out of the sky for them fine here's as much money as you want here's as many reichsmarks as you want go build a nerve agent factory and that's what they did um turns out you know things are easier on paper in nerve agents than they are in, in reality but during the course of the war at a place called Dyernfurth, which is now in Silesia, uh, but which it's now in Poland. It was a German region known as Silesia. Uh, they built IG Farben using a variety of commercial covers and lots of money laundering because along the way, lots of people were padding their pockets and getting rich in this whole thing. They built a nerve agent factory, and this nerve agent factory made something like 12,612 tons, something like that, uh, filled most of it into aerial drop bombs, some of it into artillery shells, and sent them off to the German army for, uh, for storage. And the thing is, this stuff never got used during the war, all right? It got squirreled away. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, but the broadest reason is the one we already talked about, this general chemical deterrence was holding. And a secondary reason is these German scientists and engineers working on this stuff, um, they, have a, they hold the British and American chemistry industries, uh, companies like ICI, DuPont, Monsanto, Shell Oil. They hold them in high regard and know that they're better resourced. So... If I recall from my reading on, on the UK program at the time as well, there was obviously yeah. concern that they were lagging behind Germany and, and they made it very, you know, easy for Germany to find out that, for example, they were producing mustard, um, probably not at the scale they wanted to be producing it, but certainly they, yeah. they their posture was yeah. we're producing it, we're stockpiling. So if it was used, we'd be able to deploy yeah. it yeah. Uh, either on German cities or on, on the front. Yeah. And. But there's also this basic uh, there's this basic assumption by several at least several of these uh, these German scientists that well we've come out across this clever idea but there's there's companies with more resources and more smart people than us so they made the assumption that probably the Americans probably the British also have nerve agents. In fact, wasn't there? I think when they spoke to some of the German scientists, isn't it true that they actually were surprised how far behind the British and Americans were? And. Not only that, the Allies had an opportunity to learn all about this stuff and ignored it. 
because they captured a German chemist in 1943 in Tunisia who had, I'm not sure what this guy did because I never figured out his name. He's anonymized in the records. This guy had actually worked in, in, in Spandau in the German chemical warfare laboratory. Uh, somehow left that job and ended up getting conscripted and turned into an infantry lieutenant and sent off to North Africa where he got captured. And he spilled his guts and said, there's all this new stuff going on. And there's this lovely interrogation report from 1943. He even says, oh, by the way, scoplamine and atropine are the antidote to this stuff if you ever get hit by it. And this stuff, get, this whole report, it's lovely. It's fantastic. Gets buried. Nobody even looks at it. Uh, uh, so great opportunity lost there. Whether or not it would have surfaced in a hurry you know, or, you know, I don't know. But what you get was this major, major shock on both east and west when facilities start getting captured, okay? You know, when munitions start getting captured. That's the big thing. And the huge epiphany is when British forces uh, take over this proving ground called Raubkammer in northwest Germany, which was the testing area. And lots of documents are there. Lots of nerve agents are there. And the whole thing is a bit of a, you know, a gold mine. And, so, and which so, which one of these didn't? I mean, what surprised me didn't didn't Western scientists even continue utilizing these facilities after well, the war as well? Well, yeah. What what happened was, um, there was huge amounts of testing paperwork, uh, test results, and data uh, on these nerve agents captured more or less intact at Raubkammer, uh, and the the Allies weren't sure whether to trust this paperwork or not, to be honest. So Porton Down assembled a group of mostly British, there were some American observers, and sent sent a group of people over to Raubkammer to selectively redo some of the tests, okay? To do test firings of shells with taboon and sarin, to do test drop, you know, replicating the German test methods to, and looking at their uh, their stuff to see if, this data, this vast trove of data uh, is relatively accurate. They said, oh, yes, this stuff, I mean, you know, you know they, didn't, they didn't sex up the, uh, the dossier. This is all legit data. I mean, they, 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 they didn't go through the years of testing the Germans did, but they did a pretty clever sort of, you know, not, you know, you know dive into this. All right, let's, let's, let's set up this one test like they did here on similar results and see if we get something broadly similar to sort of, spot check the uh, the german work and yeah they did uh although you get this interesting case where they run out of test animals okay um there's this interesting archival document where this group is demanding and requesting goats and um and the word from the air ministry is no we're not flying any goats over to you so we, we literally have the men who aren't staring at goats <laughs> Porton Down really wanted to work with goats. Uh, they ended up en ending having to work with rabbits. Uh, and basically, these guys were going back and forth to England, smuggling rabbits in their in their hand baggage because the uh, the the RAF was not going to transport livestock. So they were smuggling hampers full of rabbits as their personal baggage. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so but to sort of sum up, you had this nerve agent program in in Germany. The pieces and parts of it are divided up, okay? And nobody has the full picture. The, what you get is the Soviet Union captures a little bit of the, of, of the materials, a little bit of the, 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 the taboon. They eventually, years later, find some documents in a salt mine in East Germany, what became East Germany. And they had these two factories. They had a place called uh, Dyernfurth and, and a, another place called Falkenhagen. Now, Falkenhagen was meant to be the sarin factory, but it wasn't anywhere actually close to actually being in full production. Both facilities were heavily sanitized and sabotaged at various points before, before the Russians got to it. Uh, and the skilled labor mostly fled west. The scientists and engineers mostly fled west. So there were a handful of knowledgeable people that the, the, the Soviets had in their hands, uh, but not that many. What you get was you've got lots of these scientists sort of hiding out in many cases 
because they were generally employees of IG Farben, so they just went to hang out at a you know legitimate factory. You know, Otto Ambrose, the big industrialist, the guy who was the you know organizer and industrialist behind the nerve agent program, was hiding out at the paint factory in Gendorf and told everybody he'd spent the war working on soap. Um, uh, so the West has got the proving ground with various odds and ends attached to it, and most of the captured taboo. Neither of them really have everything to put the whole thing together, but both East and West assume that the other side has more of the knowledge. So what you have is this interesting knowledge transfer dilemma. And that's where we get to our guy, Tilly. Because into this mix comes an interesting effort. Uh, there is in there is a there's an Anglo-American joint intelligence effort to find the the scientific and technical secrets of the Third Reich. All right, there had been much Nazi propaganda about super weapons and extra inventions and all this sort of stuff. And there's a big grain of truth behind that. You had V1 and V2, you know, rockets, you had these nerve agents, you had all sorts of other stuff going on. Uh, plus, you also had a lot of rumored innuendo and, you know, some BS because it was Goebbels, or Goebbels and his propaganda ministry just piping out stuff. The fake news of the day. But there was a pretty good combined effort to, to exploit, interrogate, discover what had gone on in, in the Third Reich. Now, a lot of this had to do with things like finding out what happened to stolen art, uh, collecting information for war crimes prosecutions. But there was this whole you know, technical intelligence aspect of this as well. Now, into this mix comes this guy, uh, Edmund Tilly, at the time a major. By the time by the time he demobilized, he was a uh, lieutenant colonel in the, uh, in the intelligence corps in the British Army. And I see this guy's name; it keeps turning up. Uh, I I find lots and lots and lots of documents in queue in the National Archives where a guy named Tilly is the interrogator, and I find hundreds of pages of interrogations of Gerhard Schroeder, for example. Gerhard Schroeder was the guy who invented taboo and sarin and hundreds of other organophosphate compounds. And I find, you know, handwritten pages that are then typed up into a transcript in German. And you know, bottom of each page, it's, it's signed by him and the interrogators is Edmund Tilly. Who is this guy? And I start finding his name in books, you know, and sort of accounts of the time. And I start getting really fascinated because it turns out this guy, he got everybody to sing like a canary. He interrogated Albert Speer, for example. He interrogated hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people involved in German industry and commerce and science. And almost instantly got them to talk. And I started thinking, well, who is this guy? And he obviously speaks German. So I just I just got on this tangent of trying to find out who is Tilly. Can I find out more? And when you can't find out more, it becomes even more interesting. Okay. Uh, I think I think the I think the key the key episode that would sum up my uh, my fascination with Tilly is the episode with the steel barrel. Uh, you know, yeah. This is this is yeah. You wanted bad puns, but I have got the Imperial War Museum over a barrel on this one. <laughs> Ten points. Yes. All right. Yeah, 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 exactly. I'm on a, I'm on a quest to have an exhibit in the Imperial War Museum relabeled. Okay. There's a steel, <laughs> there is a steel barrel in the Imperial War Museum. Uh, and if you do a, if you, if you do, if you do a search through their vast records for a guy named Edmund Tilly, you get two things. You get a steel barrel and you get a picture of Edmund Tilly shaking hands with uh, King George the sixth and that's it. Okay. So I found the story of the steel drum, and I found this in the archives. Now, I made reference to this guy, Otto Ambrose. Otto Ambrose was a shifty mendicant. He was a man who, over the course of um, the war, managed to build an industrial empire to make nerve agents. He also built a smaller industrial uh, empire to uh, make artificial rubber. That's really what got him into 
really bad trouble with war crimes tribunals because that was at a place called Auschwitz and it used slave labor. But Ambrose, Ambrose personally got wealthy on this. And he assembled a vast organizational nightmare of a diagram that I've not even been able to piece together. If I had six years and a bunch of German speaking, you know, forensic accountants, we could go through the 19th, literally 19,000 pages of records I found and try to piece it all together. Shell companies, joint stock companies, holding companies, you know, lots of shifting of money, uh, tax rebate agreements with the German government, stuff like this. But anyway, to make a long story short, he set up a corporate empire uh, under the aegis of IG Farben, but quite arm's length from mainstream stuff at IG Farben to build chemical warfare agents. And not just not just Taboon and Sarin, also their more traditional stuff like you know, mustard and nitrogen mustard and stuff like that. So in order to do this, uh, he needed a web of holding companies and shell companies and stuff like that. And these are all incorporated under German law. These things had names like Anorgana and Montana and you know, Seawork and stuff like that. Uh, and they all had boards of directors and you know minutes and meetings and all that. And somehow this guy Ambrose becomes, you know, he has 19 jobs at the same time. And they all have salaries. Okay. <laughs> and I found his dry cleaning receipts. He's very well dressed. Okay. Right, yeah. Yeah. When, when, when Dan Kazita says, I have the receipts, I mean it literally on this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because, well, you know, to, you get to chase, get to the chase literally and figuratively. Um, Edmund Tilly is tasked with trying to figure out what the hell went on in this nerve agent program and is chasing all over Germany, trying to put the pieces together. And he's, he's interrogating Everybody from the cleaner all the way up to the captured executives at IG Farben and gradually piecing together a, a jigsaw puzzle. And a huge missing piece of this jigsaw puzzle is Otto Ambrose. He seems to go on the ground. Nobody can find him. Uh, and a huge wadge of documents, which turns out Otto Ambrose, when he saw that the end was coming, uh, sent, uh, sent his deputy von Klenk. Uh, back to corporate headquarters to basically hoover up all the really, really, really interesting documents. And from their point, it wasn't even technically interesting. It wasn't really how to make Saren. It was, it was all the, it was all the documents about how they got rich. It was all the incorporation documents and all that. You'd have, you'd, have, you'd have assumed someone that was making sense of the whole war would have been better at doing his own laundry, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, you would think, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, so, so, but he, you know, he, he had all this stuff hoovered up, and Von Klink got a paint drum out of the warehouse because, you know, IG Farben made a lot of paint. Uh, and he got this guy, the fire chief at the facility, who was a wounded SS veteran from the Eastern Front, this, uh, his name escapes me. It's in my book. Got the got the fire chief. I think uh, uh, you got to say, go bury this in the woods somewhere and don't tell me. All right. So he did, but eventually, Edmund Tilly pieces it together, finds the fire chief, interrogates the fire chief, um, finds out that the fire chief had actually been in the SS in the Eastern Front, threatens the fire chief with um, being handed over to the Russians and therefore probably a firing squad. Uh, or at least 20 years in Borkuta, you know. Uh, so the fire chief all of a sudden remembers where the barrel is is, uh, is is buried. So Tilly takes the fire chief and a shovel out in the woods and finds the barrel. The barrel itself is sitting in the Imperial War Museum. The contents, all 19,000 pages of it, are in queue at the National Archives. And so I said, wow, this Tilly, he's, he's, is he a hero? I don't know. What about this guy? So I started, you know, wondering about, you know, his life story. How did, how did, how, how, it, how did this guy get to where he is? How does he speak German? He speaks, and he speaks German so well that, you know, he's having just these fluent discussions with everybody from the cleaner all the way up to Albert Speer. And so I just got intrigued on Edmund Tilly, the person, and not just his role at the time. I sent off a request to the archives at the Army Intelligence Museum at some place called Chicksands. 
say, wow, what do you tell me about Tilly? And they, they, they embarrassingly report back and say, oh, we got nothing. And we're very embarrassed of that because we should have something. We don't. His file's empty. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, what, what do you have? So, uh, so you, uh, and of course, this means you heard, this is interesting. This is more interesting now. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. This is very interesting. And they're interested too. It's like, what the hell? So I started a, a little bit of a, you know, diversion to find Tilly, you know. Uh, the Imperial War Museum had a little bit mention of Tilly, a previous position Tilly had held. Turns out, you know, Tilly earlier in the war had been an interrogator at this place called the CSDIC, the Combined Services Defense Interrogation Center. Uh, and it was for the it was for the Mediterranean and sort of Middle Eastern theater of the conflict. And it was in a place called Mahdi outside of Cairo where allegedly he was the great interrogator for cracking these German spies who've been caught because we forget that you know, places like Beirut and Damascus and Baghdad uh, and Iran and Cairo, these were hotbeds of espionage and German spies were turning up, you know, sometimes under, you know, cover as, you know, one, one, one of the spies was undercover as a, as a Swiss watch repairman, uh, but evidently Tilly, you know, broke the watch repairman and saying, you're not speaking Swiss German, you're speaking, you know, Hamburg German. No Swiss person would ever speak that. <laughs> and so the guy melted in about 10 minutes. All that Gestapo training, you know, gone. And some other guy who uh, was traveling on a Dutch passport uh, took Tilly 30 days, but eventually cracked him. So I got these two episodes of this very good interrogator. And I get all this stuff later on, you know, I, so I start pulling up other things that Tilly did out of the archives. And I've not even tapped the fullest extent of that. You know, I, you know, there's a lengthy document where he is basically his triage document where he's visited an IG Farben facility, basically hauled everybody into the conference room and is pulling them out one at a time. And some of them really, he's, he's dismissing these guys in about two sentences. This guy is a worthless time server, not worth the time, you know, <laughs> Uh, this guy is a bullshit artist, basically. Wow. Uh, this guy's like, interesting. This guy's sounds, interesting. Sounds like my annual review. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so I started. So, so I, I, I now have this lifelong project to, uh, you know, patch together somehow, stitch together the life and times of Edmund Tilly, which I think, you know, the more I find, the more I find that I don't know. And I, you know, and so let me tell you about this guy. He was born in Germany, and. The early 1890s, I found two different dates of birth on them. Not unusual, uh, to be honest, when you start doing sort of family history and, you know, and genealogy. So somebody, somebody transposes a date somewhere or somebody puts the wrong thing. So I found this, you know, I, I found fragments. I, I, found, um, I found an obituary of his son, Hubert, which gave me some stuff. His son, Hubert, died not that long ago. Uh, but and Tilly's father was famous. So... Edmund Tilly was born in Germany, in Marburg, Germany, in the 1890s. You know, guys like you and me, Brett, were conditioned to think that the Germans were the enemies. You know, it's because of two world wars. But in the 1890s, it was a pretty good relationship, uh, seeing how, you know, frankly, Germanic our royal family is. And you know, they're all cousins. There was a, you know, there was a relatively warm Anglo-German relationship at the time. I remember reading, actually, I think this was to do with the interwar years with the UK's chemical weapon industry. They were confident that the Germans would be believing that the UK had a good yeah because many of them would have visited as yeah. part of their industrial exchanges, even as late as the interwar years. Yeah. So yeah. there was that, in, that introduction. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Tilly's father was a professor of English at the University of Marburg. And so Tilly spends the first 18 years of his life, you know, living in Germany, speaking German from birth. His father is a professor of English, also runs a series of so-called Tilly method schools where posh middle and upper class Germans who want to learn English, you know, pay Tilly to learn how to speak English properly. Uh, and vice versa, Tilly method. He was the Charles Berlitz of his time and the Anglo-German sphere. So... Tilly grows up as a as a linguist, speaking English and German very fluently. He gets packed off to university in the U.S. at a propitious time because it's right before the uh, beginning of the First World War. So Tilly is in university, a place called Union College in Schenectady, New York, which is sort of near Albany, uh, and is there during the war, which saved him internment because his his siblings and his parents were all you know, sort of locked up in German internment camps for the for the duration 
pretty much, as best I can tell. Tilly stays in America, graduates from university, ends up almost immediately on the faculty of the university. I, when, the, when the U.S. enters the war, because he's a resident alien, he's actually theoretically subject to conscription. I found his draft registration card. in the. Uh, uh, interestingly, uh, his draft registration card is, shows yet another fragment or uh, mystery. It asks if he's done any prior military service in any other country, and it said he did three months in the Army in Canada. So at some point, he, you know, maybe as a British citizen, he had some, incurred some obligation, went up, did some military training in Canada. I don't know the deal there. But anyway, the war ends. Tilly is now married, has a daughter. His wife, Gwendolyn, is an American. Don't know what the deal is. I found him in the 1920 census. He's now a lecturer at Robert College. He went basically straight from student to lecturer, and he's teaching French and German. So I'm fairly sure that his upbringing probably taught him French as well, too, probably. And at some point, I, I still haven't worked the transitions out of this, he ends up in Turkey. You know, he leaves the U.S., ends up in Turkey at a place called Robert College. Uh, Robert College is a posh private school in Istanbul, set up roughly at the same time as the American University in, in, in Cairo and the American U University in Beirut. It's set up in the 1860s, 1870s by Americans who want to export education as a thing. And they set it up kind of as this sort of Anglo-American style private school, a little bit like a fake Eton. Students live in houses. It was where, where the elite, first of Ottoman, then of sort of, you know, Republic of Turkey society went. Huge numbers of very famous Turkish people went there. Very, various people during the Ottoman Empire, you know, there. two early prime ministers of Bulgaria, for example, are alumni of this school. So Tilly ends up as a French and German instructor. And the advisor to the drama society. Okay. So I found documents there. So I don't know how long he lived there, but clearly he ended up collecting lots of books because very ancient collectible books. I'm talking like you know, stuff from the 1600s, books on ancient Byzantium, you know, written in 1600s, 1700s with his book plate in it have turned up on the collectible book market. Okay. Ah. So he's, he's got books. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he's evidently well regarded as an amazing, amazing coach to the drama uh, program at the school. You know, uh, I, I found this photograph of the Turkish students uh, doing Pirates of Penzance in the 1930s, <laughs> lavish costumes. At some point, some point, I don't know when, he seems to have separated, you know, divorced something from his first wife. I don't know what the deal is there. I haven't figured that out. In the late 1930s, somehow he ends up back in the UK doing what? Not sure. Have an address for him in North London, okay, in Hampstead. I went by, looked at the house. It's he probably rented a modest room. In 1940, by this point, he's 47, 48 years old. He enlists in the army uh, about the time of the Blitz. He enlists in the army as a second lieutenant, lieutenant. Sorry, I'm trying to be bilingual. Uh, <laughs> in the intelligence corps. And then disappears off the record. You know, you can go to Q and there's these vast bound volumes of everybody who was a commissioned officer. Uh, but there's there's really only sort of a date of birth, date, date of enlistment, address of enlistment, and the various dates at which he was promoted. You get a little footnote that the person was wounded. You get a little footnote that the person was died. You get a little footnote of somebody who's received an award. Okay. And eventually, you know, he becomes a captain very quickly, then a major very quickly. He's major for a long time. And at basically during all this post-war stuff where he's investigating all this stuff and he spends some several years doing it, he gets promoted to lieutenant colonel. At you know, some point in the war, he picked up the little asterisk saying he got a medal, but I couldn't figure out what the medal was. I looked through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gazettes at the time, couldn't find anything. So whatever it was, I think it was a bit secretive. From the timing, I suspect it may have been this time when he was in Cairo doing the interrogation stuff, but I don't know. So I, I, ha I only have pieces of his record. Then he leaves the Army in 1948, having submitted lots of aff affidavits for uh, trials at, uh, at Nuremberg. Lots of his stuff is in, in various files for the Nuremberg trials, particularly on the IG Farben guys. And he disappears. He disappears again. He appears again in uh, sort of 1951 with, where he gets married in Kensington Town Hall in the civil ceremony in front of the registrar. Okay. 
uh, Kathleen Mary. Uh, an address, uh, firmly middle-class address near Earl's Court in West London. Again, I went to go look at it. <laughs> Interestingly enough, later on, years after he lived in it, there was a murder in the flat where he lived. That's I'm trying to get to. It involves drug dealers and Vietnamese boat deal uh, boat people, refugees, and something like that in the 1970s. That's a tangent. You know, find these tangents uh, anyway. And then he disappears again. Then I find his death record. He dies in 1966 in Cornwall, of all places, in Newland, the fishing village. I mean, Penzance. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so. You know, being the keen historian I am, I doorstepped the Newland Archive, <laughs> run by very, very, very dear people. They're lovely people, and I'm sure they're going to listen to this. So a big shout out to the uh, to Pam and Sue and all the others down at the uh, Newland Archive. And I will be back down to visit you soon because we're working on this one together now, aren't we? Okay. And I found the house, found the house where he died and not much else. The house had been bought by his wife. And we had an address. That's how I managed to backtrack the address back to uh, London and find his uh, find the the marriage record. Uh, and you know the Newland Archive are useful on that. And that's all I know. Don't know. I mean, I suppose he could have just retired down there. I don't know what the Cornwall connection was. Um, intriguingly, the house has got a secret tunnel in the basement. <laughs> so the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And nobody down there had heard of this guy. Uh, so I really, I was like throwing a hand grenade into a, into a beehive. I, I, I've got the amateur history, uh, the entire amateur history and archive scene in New and well agitated on the subject of this, this, this guy. Um, uh, and I'm going to follow that on with any listeners know anything about it, Edmund Tilly. A T-I-L-L-E-Y, although at various points he omitted the E, so there's a T-I-L-L-Y in some documents. So anybody knows anything about Edmund Tilly, uh, born 1892, died 1966, service in the, uh, in the British Army, and seemingly three months of the Canadian Army at some point, um, let me know. I'm easily found everywhere on social media. <laughs> <laughs> it's an amazing story. Um, yeah. I, I love... The image of the of this barrel as yeah. a kind of centerpiece, and and the I, I I think you're right. So the the barrel will be is it the Imperial War Museum? Yeah. I, I assume it's not displayed. So I imagine there's. It is. Is, is it? Is it, it is. Yeah, yeah. I got to give a lot of credit to Ian Kikuchi. I don't know if you know Ian. He's a curator there. Uh, you know, he said, "Hey, look what I found." You know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I had to give him all the documentation I found in cue to show the, really this story. Uh, because it's often the case is the original story with the barrel when it was given to him isn't the same as, you know, what I found in the archives. Uh, evidently, some sort of folklore had gone up that this had been dug up at Berkshire's garden and contained Hitler's secrets. Ah, um, classic, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, it had been dug up and it contained Hitler's secrets of sorts in the sort of form of contracts and spreadsheets for nerve agents, not Hitler's secret secrets. Uh, uh, so I was able to do a whole sort of Bendor Grosvenor act and establish the provenance of this barrel <laughs> and, and marry it up with these documents from the, ar from the, the archives of Q. Uh, and then, so it's, you know, it's fascinating to be able to sort of put history together like this and, and actually try to tie it to a real person. You know, I mean, I found somebody through so, through the vast power of social media. I found a great grandson of, or so a great grand nephew of Tilly. Who, oh, right. Unfortunately, doesn't really know anything. That's the thing. I've sent some basically blind emails to various Tillys who had sort of the right name to have been his descendants and were the right age. And uh, got, it was a dry hole, you know, as as the oil drillers would say. No, not me, not my branch of Tillys. Uh, there's some Tillys out there. If you hear this, I, I. <laughs> I'm on a I'm on a quest to have a blue plaque put up somewhere for Edmund Tilly because I think there was a story to tell here, and I only have a third of it. You Fantastic. Know. Well, Dan, it's been really wonderful speaking to you. Um, I've got a lot out of that story, and I'm sure we will have listeners who may hopefully be able to to, to you know, trigger their memory. We'll we'll start a social media campaign. Uh, yes. Um, but that's wonderful. So I really hope for all the best with your continued studies. And um, yes. I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes out next. What's in the pipeline for you, Dan, in terms of uh, what you're working on? Well, 
I am working on a book chapter on disinformation and the Sergei Skripal affair. Uh, for the, I never know how to pronounce. Is it Rutledge or Routledge? <laughs> the, say it with confidence, I think. So, yeah. Yeah. The, the the upcoming Rutledge Handbook of Disinformation Studies. I'll be writing the Sergei Skripal chapter. That's in the pipeline. I have a non-chemical, non-biological work in the pipeline, uh, indulging one of my other historical interests on the history of partisan resistance against Soviet occupation in the three Baltic countries, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. And people ask, well, why the hell would you write that? Well, I'm going to say that my surname is not exactly Irish. No offense <laughs> to the Irish. I am, probably am part Irish. I am part Lithuanian, and I have an interesting... Well, interesting archival documents <laughs> on, 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 on partisan resistance in, in Lithuania. I've extended that you know, research to Latvia and Estonia. And I'm going to knock together a little book on that later this year. And then next year's project is the history of tear gas and riot control agents from a multidisciplinary angle where I'm going to sort of look at it from a lot of different perspectives, that, some of which you might not even think of. So I'm going to come at tear gas, riot control agents from about eight or ten different sort of cross-section slices. Fantastic. And your book, Toxic, is now out in paperback. Is that right? Uh, $14.99 in the UK. Uh, reach, reach out to me for a discount code with my publisher. Uh, it's in hardback in the US with Oxford University Press. Um, I have no, um, no idea if there's paperback plans in the US or not. Watch this space. Out in paperback in French translation, actually, called Neurotoxic uh, in, in France uh, for something like 25 euros. Uh, I'm told I've totally made it in France because it's in the passé simple uh, tense, which <laughs> I, mean, uh, I, I am told by people who are much smarter about French grammar than I am that that means I've truly arrived. And I, 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 it's, it's a truly highbrow publication. So, OK, um, I'll have to dine out on that the next time I go to Paris. Uh, fantastic okay it's a wonderful sunny day outside that so go and enjoy the rest of the weather and i'll um i'll speak to you again soon okay all right and thank you very much uh, for listening uh, from both myself and dan and i hope you can tune in next time and join me as we continue uh, anti-social history of biological and chemical weapons and warfare see you next time